Welcome to Chapter 11 of A History of England. I'm David Beeson. This is the chapter where we take a look at the transition between Elizabeth I and her successor on the English throne. Now, Good Queen Bess had seen plenty of people off in her long reign, including Philip of Spain and Mary Queen of Scots, to name just two. She'd taken England from a second-rate European nation at best, to a challenger for a place at the top table, nipping at the heels of France, the upstart that was itself ready to replace declining Spain as the major power of the continent. However, not even Elizabeth could see off the Grim Reaper, so when he finally called for her, she went. She did make things about as awkward as she could. She'd produced no children herself, so her nearest relative was James VI of Scotland, Mary Queen of Scots' son. She didn't even leave a will. You know, something like, yeah, okay, if you insist, it goes to him, the chap in Scotland, cousin Mary's brat. Her chief minister, Sir Robert Cecil, equally capable son of the William Cecil we've met before and who had seen to Mary Queen of Scots' execution, claimed that on her deathbed, she pointed to her head when he mentioned James, which he reckoned was her way of saying James should have the crown. Cecil wasn't exactly impartial, however, since James's accession was his best hope of keeping the job. It had been a deliberate tactic of hers not to make a will, because she didn't like the idea of naming a successor. People, she suspected, would rather look to the rising sun than the setting sun. After all, she remembered how people kept looking to her as a promise of relief while her bloody half-sister Mary was on the throne. A major problem was that even talking about the monarch's possible death was regarded as compassing the death of the sovereign, which was high treason. It wasn't good for your health to be caught engaging in high treason, or even suspected of it. Just meeting a couple of people and asking, well, she's going to go, and I reckon it's quite soon, so what should we do? Could be construed as compassing the sovereign's death. Still, Robert Cecil was no fool. Compassing or not, he'd been writing to James. He knew that if things were going to go well for him, he needed some solid groundwork in place before Elizabeth popped her clogs. He kept the correspondence super hush-hush, of course, but it's possible that the Queen guessed. If she did, she mercifully turned a blind eye. It has to be said, though, that Cecil had also been buying land and borrowing money as insurance in case things went belly up. A second problem is that once the monarch died, all the ministers and courtiers automatically lost their jobs. That would mean they couldn't do very much to ensure the succession went smoothly, or in a way that suited them. Fortunately, Cecil's dad, William, had come up with a neat solution. There was a tradition, lost in the mists of English history until he fortuitously dug it up, that the Great Council could summon Parliament in the absence of the monarch, who normally was the only one with the power to do that. So what was this Great Council? Cecil said that it was the Privy Council, which was the very ministers who would lose their posts on the monarch's death, 
plus some of the major nobles of the kingdom. And who would dare to tell him that he was wrong? Elizabeth died at three in the morning on the 24th of March, 1603. If you go and take a look at her tomb in Westminster Abbey, please don't write to me to say I got the date wrong. At the time, New Year's Day wasn't the 1st of January, but Lady Day, the 25th of March, the Feast of the Annunciation. So the 24th of March would have been the last day of 1602, which is what's marked on the tombstone, not well into 1603 as we'd reckon it today. Robert Cecil summoned the Great Council immediately after the Queen died. When it assembled, he took the chair. The leading noble present, the Earl of Northumberland, challenged him. Why are you chairing this meeting, pal? This isn't the Privy Council. Uh, right, said Cecil nervously. You want to take over? Northumberland thought for a bit. Nah, he said. You're good. Stay where you are. I may not have got that bit verbatim. By six in the morning, a proclamation, strangely similar to the draft that Cecil happened to have prepared earlier, and secretly cleared with James, was read out at the gate of Whitehall Palace. At nine, it was read out in the city of London. It was greeted with silence. People weren't too sure how things were going to go. There might be other claimants and it might be bad for one's health to have been seen cheering the wrong one, i.e. one that didn't win out in the end. As for the new king himself, 400 miles or 600 kilometres away in Edinburgh, he knew nothing about what was happening. No phones, you see, no telegraph, no WhatsApp. Cecil had made it clear in the small hours that no one was to go and tell the new king until he, Cecil, was good and ready. He ordered the palace gates locked. Unfortunately, one of the council members was the brother of a certain Robert Carey. This Carey had stationed horses all along the road from London to Edinburgh, ready to carry him up there with the news at the quickest possible speed. You can imagine that this must have represented quite an investment, not one Carey wanted to write off. The brother ordered the gate opened against the direct instructions of Cecil, and Carey rode out. He did damn well. Leaving before dawn on the 24th of March, he arrived in Edinburgh after nightfall on the 26th, having ridden nearly 600 kilometres, which is astonishingly good going on horseback. He was bloodied, indeed. One horse had thrown him and kicked him in the head, but he was unbowed. At least he was unbowed until he bowed to James and took his place at the very front of the queue for a juicy court appointment under the new king. The king was so delighted he made him a gentleman of the bedchamber for his pains, and Carey, of course, was delighted with his reward. It didn't last long, though. Cecil wasn't delighted at all. The appointment was rescinded in short order back in London. Still, Carey did fine in the end, though. He was an MP several times and finally Earl of Monmouth. Brown-nosing, and he browned his on quite a scale, often does eventually pay off. Next time we'll hear about James travelling down to London and mounting his throne 
and what all that announced for the new Stuart dynasty of English kings. Thanks for listening.